Hi, I'm Chad from Saskatchewan, Canada. Hi, I'm Michelle from San Francisco. Hi, I'm Mike Todd from Austin, Texas. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Thanks. Bye-bye. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, comedian Mark Marin, is uh, an acclaimed stand-up comic. He's also the host of Break Room Live on uh, Air America Radio or Air America Radio's website and was a, a host of several programs for Air America Radio. He's got a brand new stand-up comedy CD called Final Engagement. Um, and the last time you were on the Sound of Young America, Mark Marin, I think... Uh, I was in college, uh, and I was standing at the base of the University of California Santa Cruz campus in my underpants. I believe that is true, and I don't quite you – know, my memory is uh, deteriorating, uh, I hope just be naturally because of age and not because of something horrible going on in my brain. But it was interesting when I got the email from you that you wanted me to come on the show. And I'm like, is this that kid that was standing outside that time in Santa Cruz? And I was on the phone. <laughs> and I remember it was difficult and it was weird. And, you, and then another email comes. And then I'm in my kitchen in, in Astoria, Queens, listening to NPR. And there you are on the radio. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, I better call this guy back. I better write him an email. Apparently, he's not on the street anymore. He's, he's legitimate. I was, I, I, I'm barely any more legitimate now than I was then, but it's, it's as always really great to have you on the show, Mark. Uh, I was listening to the new CD final engagement when I was walking my dog this morning and, and I was really struck by the fact that you kind of open the CD, you know, in stand up comedy, often people want to open their act with uh, a surefire winner that they know is going to get the crowd on their side. Um, and on on your new record, you sort of open your CD with a series of, I don't know what I would call them, challenges to existential, the audience? Existential challenges. <laughs> why did you, why, why would you, why would you open your act with that? I mean, leaving aside the issue of having it in your act, why would you, why is it important to you to get that out of the way right at the very top? I'm not sure, Jesse. I, I'm not sure why I do it the way I do it. I can't say that it is the right way to go about doing comedy, but uh, that CD was recorded at a point in my life where I was at a sort of uh, an existential, existentially bleak place. And I just insist on the idea that that is where we are all starting from. And that is the reality of the situation. So I don't, uh, I don't hold back and I'll, I'll share that. I'm sure that I was looking for something funny and I think it was funny, but I think it's also one of the reasons why I am sort of challenging as a comic uh, the reason I opened it that way is I, I must have been feeling it that way. And I'm not somebody who does the same act every night. And, and over that weekend that I was recording those shows, I was sort of taking on things that I had not taken on before on stage. I wasn't sure where they were going. And not unlike my other CDs, there are bits on there that are probably going to become bigger bits, stronger bits. Uh, they might change in their tone. 
But I liked it the way it was. Uh, to me, being that type of raw as opposed to what most people call raw, which is just filthy, but actually being emotionally raw, I, I thought to be uh, honest. I love that I record CDs. They publicize it as such. And I still can't fill a fucking room. No, don't feel sorry for me. This is what I wanted. I want to be a marginalized act. I want to be a little known thing. That's what I want. What do you think, I want big success? Fuck that. Having all those people liking you, spending money on you, making it so I can get a better car. Who needs that? Then what would I write about? Sitting at home being all happy and shit. That would be boring comedy. Hey, I'm really happy. I got all kinds of new things. Ha ha ha. Why is it that you feel it's so important to be that kind of raw on stage? I had a realization recently that almost everything I do in life is to to find some relief, to make myself feel a little better, to try to make sense of things. And usually the baseline I'm starting from is that sort of negation, that existential bleakness. That's not depression. It's not cynicism. It's not nihilistic. It's just it's just a question of, of why am I alive? What has importance? You know, what what relevance are my feelings and, and and how do I make my struggle to make sense of that funny? And I'm sort of counting on the idea that my struggle to making sense of those things is funny to a certain type of people. Unfortunately, a lot of them are bipolar uh, or, <laughs> or or incredibly emotionally distracted or fragmented. But they are the people, honestly, that need comedy more than anybody else. And uh, those are my people, Jesse. <laughs> You you talk you talk in that in that first five minutes of the set of the idea that um, rather than going to your show for entertainment, people are going to your show for relief with the idea that it's almost like a home remedy. And you posit that that their their position on it is this had better work. (laughs) Well, you know, I I was also saying at that point, uh, I think I stopped saying it recently that that because of my life at that at that point in time, when I recorded that, I said a lot of people leave my show saying, wow, that guy was hilarious. Or they leave saying, you know, I hope he's okay. (laughs) You know, I, I, I you know, it was interesting. I don't know if I'd go again. I'm glad I saw it. So I, I, of, I often wonder why I don't get a lot of repeat business because I'm very intense. You know, I, I run you know, relatively deep. I don't doll things up too much. I try to extract humor just from being raw and, and honest, which I think is, is disconcerting and a little jarring to some people because most of the time you don't see that type of energy in, in your day-to-day situation. I, I, and I was thinking about that today as I was Twittering and checking my Facebook compulsively. And doing all these uh, things to keep in touch with this broad narcissistic network of uh, of people that need attention that seems to be the culture that we live in, that that in and of itself has become some sort of relieving belief system for people to kind of see who's checking in with them, to see who put the cute thing up, to see who who uh, who got the best joke, to see who's commenting on your status. And I find that if I put something negative in my status bar, that the people that will gravitate to it are either people that want to try to make me feel better or people that are even more depressed than me. <laughs> and both of those things are a little disconcerting to even me. But, but, 
but, but, but my assumption is, is that these are the things we're trying to entertain ourselves away from. So if I put those things out there in as raw a form as possible, perhaps they, they will not only be entertaining, they will be relieving, and also it will elevate to, uh, the, the dialogue to a different place. Because I think a lot of people are, are sort of un, uh, don't have an anchor, a little untethered, a little uh, oblique in their in disposition. Why wouldn't you be? MySpace? Now i got to be on MySpace? That's a, what, the, what the fuck is that? <laughs> now any, other, any fucking asshole in the world can extend their narcissism into the ether and just go fishing for, like me, like me, look, I'm out here, like me. <laughs> I swear to God, one day aliens will land after we've extincted ourselves and the world is nothing but burning shit heaps and polluted water. And they're going to come down here on a scavenger run for metal. They're going to find our hard drives and they're going to hold them up to their foreheads and read them because they can do that. They're aliens. <laughs> and they're going to see MySpace on all of them and they're going to say to each other, holy shit, every member of this species actually thought they were important. Do you feel like you've always had this set of values for your standup or, or like this is something that you've come to after having done it for 20 years? Well, I think what happened to me is uh, originally the model was more of an in-your-face model. That you know, I was never a political comic, and I don't—I certainly don't call myself a political comic because I think political comedy, by and large, trivializes uh, bigger problems. I, I've always been a cultural commentator, so to speak. But I think where I, I really function best is, is when I am personally engaged in something and how it relates to me directly. So originally it was more – I came more from the uh, – a, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more in your face, a little bit more, you know, shock oriented to try to find a, a certain amount of hypocrisy or to turn things on their head and sort of uh, uh, that tradition of comedy. But then as I got older, I found myself getting more in my head uh, and then uh, I sort of got lost in there. And now what's sort of happening is I want to figure out a way to capture the the humility of of being alive, the humility of 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 being disappointed, the humility of of making do, of realizing your limitations, of growing up, of of having that type of vulnerability. And I recently went back because I'm now working on a one man show based on my divorces and and what I believe love is and the type of anger that comes from that. Some of that is on the CD. That I found myself going back to Richard Pryor's first movie, in terms of of how does a comic really put his heart out there. I, I, when you really think about comedy, it, comedy, the, to be funny is a defensive action in and of itself. It, it is, it is in, its, in and of itself, it, it is sort of obfuscating uh, pain or fear or anger. Uh, it's elevating it to, uh, to a comedic level to disarm it. And I've been sort of hung up with the idea of actually getting under that. And, and I make myself as vulnerable as I possibly can on stage. And what, what ultimately happens there and what I learned not just a few years ago is that I, for the first part of my career, was hung up on the idea that if everybody just dug a little deeper into themselves, they would realize that they are exactly like me. And then I started to realize, Mark, that's not true. Some people were properly parented. Uh, they have emotional <laughs> boundaries. Uh, they're able to distance themselves from things. It's not all about them. Maybe they're not all like you, no matter how dig, how far you want them to dig. And then I realized, all right, well, I'm going to have to cut them a break and just accept the fact that they can either laugh with me or laugh at me. It doesn't matter. You can laugh directly at my pain or you can relate to it in a personal <laughs> level. And I'm okay with that. So that's the big transition. 
I married this wife, you know, and I left because she's fucking spectacular. There was nothing I could do. I could not choose against the feelings that I had for the woman I left my wife for. That's the way it went. Whatever. <laughs> you don't know how it's going to happen. Sometimes you got to make choices, and that was my choice, right? No, maybe. I don't know. I still don't want to be with the first one. But here's the funny story. <laughs> So, so here's what happens. I run into the first wife. I go to the airport. This is hilarious. And it's like it was on Thanksgiving. And I'd been separated from this wife for about four or five months. I was a fucking mess. And I'm at LAX. I'm going to visit my mother. It's six in the morning. And I see my, my first wife with her new husband. I'm like, oh, fuck. And I tried to avoid seeing her her seeing me. And I walk past the gate. And I hear, Mark. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And she comes running up to me. And she's like, how are you? And I just burst out fucking crying. I don't even know where it came from. I just started fucking blubbering like a like fucking little baby. I just said, like, and she looks at me and goes, not so good, huh? <laughs> I was so happy to give her that moment. Comedian Mark Marin's new CD is called Final Engagement. We'll have more with Mark when we come back in just a minute on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Thousands of people across the world already listen to Jordan Jesse Go every week, but do you? Jordan Jesse Go is a freely flowing comic conversation with me, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, and my comedian and TV host super pal, Jordan Morris, boy detective. Not to mention awesome guests like Rob Corddry, Martin Starr, and Andy Daly, to name a few. Jordan Jesse Go is an iTunes staff favorite and a great way to keep your head up in difficult times. It's 75 minutes or so of good times every week delivered to your iPod free of charge. Just visit MaximumFun.org and click on Jordan Jesse Go or search for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes today. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Mark Marin. His new CD is called Final Engagement. You can also find his web show, Break Room Live, at AirAmerica.com slash Break Room Live. The, the beginning of your career was in uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s when um, the great successes of that in-your-face model that you were talking about were maybe a Sam Kinison, a, a Bill Hicks in, in different ways. Tell me about what your style was like then and, and who you were modeling yourself after. I'm not sure when exactly it got angry. I think it was somewhere around the time when I was in college where I realized I was too sensitive and too shy and too heady and too arty to really exist in the world without crying all the time. So, <laughs> uh, you know, instead of, you know, honoring that and, and, and becoming uh, more sophisticated, more intellectual and, and maneuvering in those worlds. I mean, I mean, Christ, when I was in college, you know, I studied poetry, I wrote poetry, I directed plays, I wrote plays, I, you know, I wrote film reviews for the newspaper. I was on that trajectory. And, and then somewhere I said, you know what, that guy has to die. Die. 
So what I did after my first major heartbreak is I started drinking. I started using more drugs. I started to get uh, a little angrier, a little tougher. I started to posture a little more. And I decided that was that was who I was going to be. I was going to just use the uh, the guy inside of me that was uh, you know sensitive and, and too, uh, too fragile to live in the world just to fuel my intellect. And then I'd drag him along with this other weird uh, you know, kind of uh, edgy, demonic incarnate that I'd become. And after college, I moved to uh, Los Angeles and became a doorman at the Comedy Store and was immediately taken under the wing of Sam Kennison when I was 20 years old or so, 21. And I did my graduate work in uh, chopping lines of coke for him. And that's where I sort of got immersed in, in I was always sort of intellectually and poetically you know, compelled by the beats and compelled by Burroughs and compelled by Hunter S. Thompson and anybody who, uh, who did drugs and destroyed their lives. I thought, well, they, they have the answer. So I was uh, uh, very in awe of Sam, even though initially when I'd seen him on TV, I, I did not love his comedy, but I grew to to know him and uh, ultimately be spat out by that entire uh, world. But his ability to push the envelope and, and create an original voice for himself and, and challenge certain things, some of his material I have problems with, but there's a couple of his jokes that, that you know were life changers for me. But uh, ultimately, I ended up uh, bottoming out on, on drugs and uh, leaving uh, Los Angeles being chased by things only I could see. But nonetheless, it was good for me. So that's sort of where that thing went. And I went back to Boston uh, where I went to college and I started doing comedy again with uh, – and at that time in Cambridge at the Catch a Rising Star, it was me and Louis C.K. and Dave Cross and Janine Garofalo. Uh, Laura Keitlinger was around. Uh, some people you might not know went on to do uh, to do writing jobs. And I kind of rejiggered myself and, and became my own being. Everybody all right? Everybody fine? That's cool. Fine is always a lie. Always. In the dictionary, it should say fine. Adjective, adverb, fucking lie. Seriously, man. If you walk up to someone and say, hey, how you doing? They go, fine. What they're really saying is, help me. Don't walk away. I'm in trouble. Please, don't walk away. I got issues. I need help. Please. But you can't say that to somebody because then they'll just go, hey, don't worry, man. You'll be fine. You know, what was the inflection point? What got you out of this kind of crazy self-destruction that you couldn't necessarily handle and into this, uh, what was essentially the, be the beginnings of, uh, of the world of so-called alternative comedy? Well, I, I always, I, I seem to be a guy that, that is left to my own devices no matter what. I, 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 I tend to, if people get to know me, I, I can play well with others. I, I'm fairly... Uh, uh, able to surrender stage and, and be pretty open. I'm very sensitive. I, I, it just took me a long time to to get back to to whatever I left in in college. To to get back to that guy that uh, that I sort of abandoned. And I, I think what the big transition was is that I became to sort of I started to celebrate bitterness. I started to believe that that bitterness was a reasonable uh, philosophy to have that 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 life was was rigged to work against you and that if you weren't bitter and if you weren't cynical then you were not really seeing things clearly and then i had some sort of realization uh i, I fell in love with a woman and uh, i got sober and i started to realize that that bitterness is really just amplified self-pity and if you look at it like that then what you're really experiencing is something very childish and there's no philosophy uh, other than like, you know, why can't somebody make me feel better? You know, and 
And that I realized was not attractive at all. And, and if people related to that, they, they want to find it in themselves and, and readjust their perception to somehow be proactive. So once I got so sober and once I had that realization about bitterness, uh, I, I just started to rethink things. And alternative comedy for me, because I came out of standard comedy clubs, uh, you know, as did uh, you know people like uh, at that time, well, Louis was a kid, but you know Janine and I and Dana Gould and some of the other people that are credited with alternative comedy or the beginnings of it were really traditional comics that found this other venue for like-minded people and used it as a place to work through things. And I... When I got involved with alternative comedy in New York, it was like, well, this is a stage. There are no requirements. There's no one paying me. I'm not uh, responsible for a draw or it doesn't matter if I alienate people. So why not start exploring through storytelling and through honesty uh, what my parameters are? You know, as a comic, I think it's a comic's job to figure out what his territory is uh, up there. You know, how far can you push it? How far uh, can you uh, uh, take an audience? You know, what are you capable of? And just really, you know, go out as far as I could uh, that of my comfort zone and figure out, you know, who I was up there on stage. So that's what really happened for me there. You described earlier this um, that this period in between the beginning of your career and now is a time when you... Uh, got a lot, got a little bit lost inside yourself. Um, w- w- what did you mean when you said that? Well, I, I think that I, I, I think most comics are, are, are probably self-centered, and I'm a little harder on myself uh, than I, I need be. And there's a certain level of insecurity that I operate with, and and I really uh, like to sit around and think about things, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, and I've been told that I'm heady. And I've been told that I'm too cerebral because everything in my brain, it's like, it's like reading for me. You know, I, I, you know, books are like drugs to me. Any book I read, whether it's a novel or a a work of nonfiction about the, uh, the Iraq war, about the Bush administration, somehow or another, I'm going to approach it as a self-help book. And I don't know if that (laughs) may, I don't know if that makes sense, you know, but I, I mean, I just found that that because my brain is constantly trying to figure out something, I'm always trying to figure out whether you want to you want to call it the meaning of life, you want to call it a personal philosophy. I just really all I wanted to do was was have a point of view about as as many things as possible and come from a place that I could call my own. So in that way, I became very uh, in my head. I, I I don't I rarely make jokes about lighthearted things. Uh, most of my material is, is very pressing. It's very important. It's, it's about big, big subjects and about big things. Uh, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't entertain fools that, uh, that easily. And I, and I really don't talk about trivial things that often. And I think on some level, that's good. On another level, it's very draining for an audience. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever, do you ever find yourself wishing that you, that you could have it's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the veteran stand-up comic Mark Marin, who finds laughs in his own weird mix of neuroticism, existentialism, and, let's be frank, hostility. A wonderful comic who's been on this show, Jim Gaffigan. I, I watched his special the other day. It's mostly about, like, pie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he's a, Jim's a spectacularly funny comedian. And, and you'll laugh an hour straight about pie and different berries that can go in pie and different uh, kinds of crust and how much people like pie. Um, do you ever wish that you had that button to at least, you know, have a, a third of your time on stage be about um, 
you know how you the how it's some parts of your body are really hard to clean in the shower yes I, and and i do i wish that and i just interviewed gaffigan and i you know i came up with gaffigan i know him well and uh and he is a wonderful comic and i have been trying to do some of that i i talk <laughs> about my cats uh, a, a lot now i i've been talking about but e- it seems that even when i talk about mundane things or trivial <laughs> things i'm inf- i'm infusing it with some very big existential themes <laughs> here's a question for you a little window into my life i'll share it with you again you know how hard it is to masturbate in front of four cats you know how hard that is <laughs> I'm assuming dogs are easier. I don't own dogs, but I guess they just want to be part of something, huh? That's really up to you, depending on how slippery your personal moral slope is and what you can rationalize effectively. But I got four cats on my bed, and they will just sit there and quietly judge. I take it out. They're like, really? Really? We're doing that again? Really? Does that make you feel better, sad man? Does that make the pain go away? There's a really great bit on uh, your new CD, uh, Final Engagement, that's about you sort of way too late in your life kind of looking at your achievements and uh, considering whether you should do something else entirely. Uh, like get the band back together, only you never had a band. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, see, I wish that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm just sort of, I, I, uh, I, I think about it a lot, Jesse. I, I, and it's not that I don't love what I do. Uh, I do feel that I'm, I'm a little underappreciated. And after a certain point, <laughs> you know, uh, having done as much as I have done, uh, in as many outlets, that uh, it becomes sort of difficult not to blame yourself uh, for not having a broader appeal. Uh, so what I've been trying to do lately is, is not so much think about, you know, I do always think about what I would do, but I think I would be very happy just baking uh, in, in a certain <laughs> way. Like I never think about like what other area of show business would, would, would I like to be in. I, I would just like to have a mixing bowl and a recipe in front of me or, or, <laughs> Or get the band back together, or 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 disappear. That's sort of why I I, I labeled the the I called the uh, the album Final Engagement. It is part of a trilogy, not sold out. A uh, ticket still available in Final Engagement. Was that I don't know where I'm going, and I I don't know what's going to happen. And I thought that was a good closer uh, in terms of completing the the CD trilogy. In that I I think I'm entering a, a new area now. I because I I do feel better. Uh, about life and i and i don't and i've i've learned a lot and i've gotten some wisdom over the years and it concerns me because i don't really know exactly what that's going to do to my voice uh but it, the best i can tell is that no matter what happens it can only bring in more people it's not going to bring in less <laughs> no plan b folks this is it no plan b <laughs> It's sad when you get older and you start like, you know, there's part of you. When you commit your life to something that's as fucking ridiculous as what I do, (laughs) you start off like, this is it, man. I'm going to fucking do it. And then about midway through, you're like, I'm doing it, man. This is all right. I got, you know, I can fill half a house in Seattle. (laughs) That's pretty good after 25 years, right? Half a house. You start going, no, it's fucking, it's still going to happen. It's going to happen, man. I got to. 
I can do it. Doesn't matter if I'm old. You know, Rodney Dangerfield was like 70. Fuck, he made it. I'm going to be all right. There's no reason to think that I'm no longer hanging on to a dream that I'm being dragged by them, is there? I'm not deluding myself, am I? Then you start thinking, well, I could always teach. Then you're like, I can't fucking do that. I could always, like, you know, go back to school. Really? At 44, you sad old fuck? You're not going to do that. I could always uh, fucking put a bullet in my head. That's not really a plan B. That's an exit strategy. Here's a sad one, though. I'm going to share it with you because I feel open. And this is a real one. I literally say to myself in my dark moments, well, you know what? Maybe it's time to get the band together. I'm 44 years old. I've never been in a band. Most of the final maybe 20 or 25 minutes is uh, material that I, I presume you're also working on in, in the one-man show that you're working on at the moment that's about you uh, going through the process of, of breaking up with your uh, now ex-wife. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that you describe in loving detail is um, efforts to make amends by uh, bake, making baked goods for her, uh, which you later realize are uh, uh, what you call hate cakes. Yes, that that you know, getting so uh, aggravated and and so uh, intensely uh, uh, sort of emotionally dismantled that I, I I would compulsively cook things because you know cooking is very it's meditative and and you you know when you're done and either it works or it doesn't. So I would do this uh, a lot because it was. Yeah, I, I would, you know, I'd make her coffee, I'd make her uh, breakfast every morning, waffles, pancakes, you know, cakes, I would cook dinner, uh, you know, but after a certain point, there, there's just no number of pancakes that's going to erase, shut the hell up, blah, 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 just shut up, uh, because once those start stacking up in a woman's heart, they're they're going to leave eventually, <laughs> but, uh, and I don't think that's completely true that I was sublimating hate. I really think I was doing the best I could, given my my particular uh, emotional liabilities. And, and oddly, during at some point during the divorce process, she said to me, you know, you just thought if you just kept cooking. And uh, and I did, Jesse. I, I did think that, <laughs> that, that that had to count for something. And maybe it did. And I still do it. I mean, I'm living alone now. And I, I went to Costco yesterday and it was just a disaster. I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> I I don't I you know given what I bought yesterday I'm going to have to open up a restaurant just for the week. <laughs> Here's a little advice for you my friend. No matter how good those pancakes are, they could be excellent, but pancakes will not erase. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Cuz when that shit stacks up it ain't like pancakes, bro. Stack of pancakes you can eat, a stack of shut the fuck up. They're taking their vagina and leaving, bro. Mark, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your relationship to your audience because um, uh, for a while you hosted a, a morning radio show, which is uh, a very, um, you know, that doing that kind of radio creates a very intimate relationship with an audience. And, and now you're doing something similar in new media, but probably even a little more personal with Break Room Live. And you've done one-man shows about your life. And, of course, you've been doing stand-up regularly for for such a long time. How is the relationship between you and the audience different in, in all those different media? 
Well, you know, if you see me for 10 minutes on TV or even 20 minutes, you're, you're not really going to get a sense of what I am like live. I, I find that in this, I'm talking about, let's start with comedy. I think that how I represent myself on television is I'm, you know, I'm a very efficient uh, technical comedian when I have to be. You know, I've done, I've been on Letterman like four or five times. I've done like, you know, God knows, 40, 45 Conan O'Briens. But I know how to do comedy. I know how to structure a short set. I know how to structure a middle range set. I, I mean, I can plan a set. But when you get to know me live and you don't know what's going to happen and I am, you know, in the middle of what I do on stage, which is, is kind of erratic, not necessarily consistent, but but always engaging, that it's a very different relationship in, in, comedically. Now, with radio, just by virtue of the fact that I, I was driving a politically toned uh, morning show and my, my knowledge uh, on a nuanced level about politics only goes so deep – and that the the people who I respected on radio were always very candid that literally people knew me and what I was going on in my life better than my mother, better than my wife, you know, better than my, my close friends, that the people that listened to me every morning really got to know me. So that relationship is very different because they come to, to comedy shows to support, not to laugh or be entertained. <laughs> you, you know, literally, I would get off stage and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, stand up was fine. What's going on with the toilet? Did you get the toilet fixed? Because you were talking about it. And I knew, you know, how are the cats? Is, is monkey still sick? Like there, there's an engagement there that was incredibly personal and I had to honor it. And it was really, uh, it was sort of taxing on my personal boundaries because I couldn't, I really couldn't say like, they don't really know me. I was, it was confounding because I'm like, oh my God, they really do know me now, but I don't know them. But what is my responsibility in that relationship? It became a, a little emotionally taxing sometimes because I, I was, I remained fairly available to them on an email level and on, on, uh, in other ways that, uh, that I, I, it was hard for me to, uh, to maintain personal boundaries with that. Do, has that changed now that you're not on the radio three hours a day, but but you are regularly on the internet and you're twittering and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, uh, my personal boundaries are still not great. Uh, but, <laughs> but and uh, and would uh, you say B minus? <laughs> I, I I don't know. Can you grade boundaries? If <laughs> I you know, I would say that uh, yeah, you know, I I'd have to get you know, maybe I don't even know if I get an A for effort. I I, uh, <laughs> I I tend to uh to to let a lot of people in to, uh, to in a certain way. Yeah, it's changed a bit. I I think that the show I'm doing on the internet is not as uh, driven by uh, sleep deprivation. Yeah, I'm not as I'm still pretty open, but the timing is, is the the time factor is a little different. The medium's a little different. Like I'm talking to you now uh, is, is much more candid. There's just something about radio uh, when you listen to it and when you're doing it and when you hear your voice in your own head and when you're talking to other people that is so intimate and uh, it, it compels uh, uh, it, it drives me in a, in, a, in a very personal direction. And, and I don't mind it because I know what it's like to listen to radio. I know what it's like to listen to your show or to listen to Ira Glass's show and to to have that experience where where it really is just you and that person. And uh, so nothing is like that. It, nothing can uh, can uh, can be like that. Well, Mark, thank you for taking the time to be so intimate with all of us. You bet. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Mark Marin's brand new CD is called Final Engagement. You can also catch him on the Air America website on his show Break Room Live with Sam Cedar. Mm-hmm. 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, known popularly as America's Radio Sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Our intern is John Kim. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And if you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. Remember, our show is supported by your donation. So if you're not already a donor, please donate. Go to MaximumFun.org. There's a donate button right up in the corner. If two bucks a month, five bucks a month, you can handle it. Okay, we'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.